Well, greetings and happy Easter to you. What a joy it is to get to proclaim the good news of the resurrection of Jesus today. This Easter presents me with a triple-decker preaching conundrum. The first layer <clears throat> plagues every preacher every single Easter. Of all the resurrection passages, of all the massive themes, of all this good news, what, O oh Lord, do I focus on in this preaching moment? Even as I have confined myself within the boundaries of John 20, 1 through 18, there's just so much to say. You know, we could focus on the forensic evidence for the resurrection, which is abundant and convincing. We could speak about the nature of the resurrection body, how, it, how it's physical and yet able to seemingly teleport and pass through walls, how it requires or at least enjoys food and yet changes appearance. What does this foretaste of resurrection mean for our own resurrection hopes? Or we could point out the prominent role of women and how Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, was the apostle to the apostles, the very first human to declare the good Easter news. Even though I just pulled out the classic preacher's trick of talking about all the themes I can't fit into my sermon by talking about them, I've still got to land somewhere. Which leads me to my second layer conundrum. I've made a conscious decision to keep my sermon shorter than 20 minutes during our COVID-19 quarantine because I know oh so personally well how hard it is to sit through a sermon with distractions at home. So much to say, so little time. And finally, the third layer, the coronavirus that forms the ambient background of our lives right now. How do I speak to the current state of the world while not allowing it to influence my interpretation of the text? As I prayed over this scripture and studied it with new eyes in a new season, my focus became clear. The theme is a new hope. I know those that know me are socially conditioned to think I was just dropping a shameless Star Wars reference right there, but for once, that's not the case, although I won't deny that in my mind I went there. It doesn't take the coronavirus to tell us that things are broken in the world. COVID-19 is just the latest in a long string of hardships that have exposed our human vulnerability, our weakness, and the brokenness of creation. Whether Jewish, Christian, Islam, or in one of the many animist spiritualities, when people think of sin or evil, they usually think of bad things that people do. And that's certainly part of it. People in every culture, in every point in time, in every generation do bad things, and we need rescue from that. But there's also a very real sense of something beyond our individual sins, and it is sin with a capital S. Since humans were created in God's image and designed to care for all creation, it's logical that the so-called fall of humanity in Genesis 3 also carried horrific consequences for all creation. So take the coronavirus. Why did this happen? Well, we don't really have an answer for that. You could point to things like human sins, like poor choices or selfishness or ignorance, and all of those things played a part in spreading the coronavirus. But as far as we know, like so many other things, there's no reason for the virus. Like so many other pathogens, accidents, cancers, natural deaths, invasive species, the list goes on. It's just all part of the broken biosphere, the ambient brokenness of a good creation. 
Don't get me wrong. There is all kinds of beauty in this world, all sorts of human expressions of love and kindness that defy the sin of the world. These are to be expected in a world that God had created. But from the very beginning of the fall, humans have known that something is very wrong with us and very wrong with the world. And God knows it too. And he set out to do something about it. It was hinted at in Genesis and Exodus. It was whispered in the poetry of the Psalms and prophets. And it was picked up by the writers of the Gospels as they came to know that Jesus had embodied the whole time the hope that one day God would recreate all things. Not a mere starting over with the same opportunities for corruption, but a new creation in which creation, including us, is enhanced, incorruptible, and still quite physical. In order to see what John is doing in John chapter 20, we have to pay attention to what he's done in John chapter 1. First, let me briefly point out that John is framing his whole gospel in terms of a creation narrative. Genesis 1 begins with the words, In the beginning. It is telling that three of the four gospel writers frame their stories of Jesus with references to Genesis or to creation. In Greek, a literal translation of Matthew's first sentence in his gospel is, Book of the New Genesis, wrought by Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Mark's gospel begins with the words, the beginning, using the Greek word arche for beginning, which matches the Greek translation of Genesis 1. And in John, we have en arche, en halagas, kai halagas, en prostontheon, kai theos, en halagas. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is presented as the creator of the world, but as we will see, he's also the first installment of the new creation. Let's walk through John 20, pausing for some references to new creation. Here's the first verse. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. Okay, now we are only one verse in, and already we're confronted by creation connotations. First, the designation of the first day of the week. Why not on the third day, or three days later, or why not Yom Rishon, the Jewish name for Sunday? It's the first day of the week because it is the first day of something entirely new that has been loosed upon the world. The stone that had covered the tomb was rolled away. Stones over mouths of tombs were, were there to seal the, in the death. They were to seal in the stink and the rot, to keep the impure things separate from the purity of life. But stones aren't made to contain life. It's as if the tomb couldn't contain the life of new creation. And notice the reference to darkness. Yes, it means that Mary was there very early in the morning. But we have already seen how John has framed his gospel as a parallel to the creation story. In Genesis 1, we know that the earth was formless and void, that the chaos of darkness was there before God spoke the earth into existence, and the light along with it, all in that first day. So let's read on now in verses 2 through 10. So she came and ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. 
and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. Now Mary didn't have categories to place all of this information. Who can blame her? No one had ever been resurrected before. She may uh, have heard Jesus talking about it in theory, but that's like someone trying to explain what downhill skiing is to a fish. It's a categorical jump that just seems impossible. It's a cognitive dissonance. But she does run to Peter and to John to tell them the news. And then we get this fun little scene of a foot race that I'll have to resist commenting on for the sake of time. But here's the next clue to new creation. The grave cloths are neatly folded, and the face covering is laid aside and wrapped up or rolled up. Just nine chapters earlier, we may recall when Lazarus had died. He was in the grave four days, and yet Jesus called his name, and he comes back to life. Now, when he came out of the tomb, he was covered up in linen cloths and had to be unwrapped by other people. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to his old life. Lazarus would then go on to die again someday. But Jesus was resurrected, not resuscitated. His body was completely of a different composition. We know that he was physical because Mary could hug him, and he could eat, and Thomas could touch his wounds. And yet, at times, he would change his composition and apparently pass through his grave cloths, just like in this scene. This whole scene is charged with newness of life. Let's continue now to verses 11 through 13. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Faithful Mary, grieving Mary, just wants to be close to Jesus. After the male disciples have come and gone, she is back, holding vigil at the last known place of Jesus' body. And it's there that she gains the courage to look into the tomb, and she sees what? Two angels, one at either end of where Jesus' body should be. Now, this is one of those extra credit moments in the sermon, where if you want to go a bit deeper, pause the podcast and look up Exodus 25, 1 through 22, and Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Discuss what this scene with the angels might say about Jesus after you've read those two other passages. Okay, but for the rest of us, let's keep pressing on into this idea of new creation. On to verses 14 through 16. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, 
and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary is so overcome with grief and fear that she misses the living Jesus right in front of her. She's so distracted by her own doubts and fears and grief that she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. But her mistake is more accurate than she knows. Jesus is not just a gardener. He's the gardener. He's the gardener of Eden, and he's returned to set in motion the great work of recreation. The king and the kingdom are breaking in all around us. And it's been this way ever since the first morning of new life nearly 2,000 years ago. Mary represents all of us who are grief-stricken and have been grief-stricken or undoubtedly will be grief-stricken. In fact, this is an invitation to bring our grief before Jesus. Mary says, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And we might say, They've taken away my loved one, and I don't know what to do. Or my hope has been taken from me, and I don't know where to turn. Or my dignity was stolen from me, and I can't see myself clearly anymore. Or my well-thought-out plans have been taken from me, and I'm disoriented. Or my financial security has been robbed from me, and I'm not sure what to do next. Or my future has been altered outside of my will, outside of my desire, and I'm frustrated. Or my job has been turned on its head, or taken away, or altered, and I had no say in it. We can bring these before Jesus. Because his plan is to undo death and to undo all of the things that we are mourning. Our mourning now will only be temporary for those who place their trust in Jesus. This is not a matter of what we can do or what we can achieve or positive thinking. This is the Lord's work. And that's good news. That's that's a new hope for us. Mary was in shock and grief until she heard the voice call her name. Mary. In Genesis 1, Jesus creates with his voice, let there be light. And there was light. In this scene, calling Mary out of grief as if saying, let there be life. And there was new life. Let there be new life in the presence of tombs and tears and tragedy. Her eyes are opened. She grips him tight. It's the natural response. It's a good response. But it's not one that can last in the new creation. In the new creation, we don't hold out of fear of losing. We don't need to try and capture Jesus or to hoard every good thing that comes our way. Because a new hope is dawned. A new creation is on the way. There is no scarcity in the coming new creation. And the beginning of that new creation is what Easter is all about. But there's more. Jesus says in so many words, Now go, tell the others that things are different now. My Father is now your Father, and my God is now your God. See, our fundamental relationship to God and each other has been altered forever. We are truly sisters and brothers. We are truly God's children. Jesus has risen from the grave. He is the foretaste, the preview, the teaser trailer of the resurrection life and the new creation. Now, until that life comes in fullness, he's unleashed a new hope for all of us. And the best part is, we can start living into that hope today. So we mourn, 
and lament the brokenness that we experience. But we also live in defiance, not defeat. We live in humility and faithfulness because we know that because Jesus rose, all the mourning and all the death and all the injustice will never have the final word. In Jesus' name, life is the final word. He's risen. He is risen indeed.